Good morning. My name is David Kakish. I'm one of the elders at Cornerstone Church. And the last sermon I preached was the front side of that text. It was a real doozy. Um, and we'll finish it today. Before we dive back in, I thought we'd do a little recap for those who missed it and those who don't want to remember it. We're going to do it anyways. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 21, we were introduced really formally to Eli's worthless sons, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas. We said that they, number one, weaponized God's gracious provision for their selfish gain. God allowed them to eat from his sacrifice. He provided for the priests to do that. They wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, these two dum-dums, and they showed contempt for God's offering, first thing. Then they tried to disguise their sinfulness, sinfulness and their selfishness as God's desire and God's will. They wanted what they wanted, and they told God's people, even though the priests knew it was wrong, this is what God wants for you to do. No. That's not how it goes. And number three, when God's people, equipped with God's word, called them out from the word of God, they weaponized their God-given authority to abuse God's people, spiritually abuse them, physically abuse them, and even sexually abuse them. And as a result, Hophni and Phinehas' sinful actions, it caused many of God's people to stumble in their faith. And I titled that first point, Sin Stinks but it stinks especially bad in the church, if you remember that. I said, like dog turds on snow. Against the backdrop of God's grace, sin sticks out most noticeably and most disgustingly in the church. And while we recognize that until we're with the Lord forever, the redeemed, those who believe in Jesus, they'll still sin. Even in the church, we'll still sin. But the expectation is that the poop, the sin, it will be picked up and dealt with, not left on the floor, to be stepped in, to freeze, and become a permanent fixture of the institution of the church. The expectation is it's dealt with. That's what we did in in verses 12 through 21, but then in verses 22 through 29, we focused on Eli, who allowed this garbage to go on for a really long time. And yes, when Eli was an old man, and yes, when his son's evil was no longer hidden, no longer quiet, it was news to all of Israel, he couldn't keep it hush-hush anymore. He finally said something, but ultimately he did nothing. And like a cop who gives leniency to his son when it comes to breaking the law, Eli was more committed to loving and serving his son than he was to loving and serving the Lord. So God sent an unnamed prophet to Eli to deliver a warning and a word of judgment for him unless he and his sons repented. There's always the opportunity for repentance. Jeremiah 18, read the book of Jonah. And God reminded Eli of his faithfulness and his goodness to generations of Eli's family. But in that reminder, he was also provoking Eli's memory to realize that Eli knows how God has dealt with crooked priests and their priestly sons in the past, and he should know that too. He asked Eli why he and his sons scorned, kicked at God's grace, And his offering. And then ultimately, in verse 29, God asked Eli, Why do you honor your sons above me? Uh, Eli's loyalty and love for his sons caused him to break the first commandment You shall have no other gods before me. And I made the point that we're, we're all called to love our spouse, love our kids, love our family, love our friends, love our church, love our neighbor. We are commanded, and those are good and godly things. But the order of our love is crucial. Which comes first, right? which comes first, and when our love for anyone causes us to excuse, to dilute, to minimize, or to just turn a blind eye to uh, sin, that's a telltale sign that our love for that person has leapfrogged our love for God. 
And when we do that, when that happens, we're not only sinning against God, we are, but we're also sinning against that person that we supposedly love because we're failing to point them to the road of obedience where their deepest joy and God's greatest glory in their life can be found. Uh, we're not loving them with our inaction. We actually are hating them. And we ended that message by asking ourselves these kind of hard questions. What am I permitting to grow in the darkness? What am I condoning? What am I tolerating? What am I allowing to go on in the church, in my house, in my heart, even when I sense and hear the convicting words and work of the Holy Spirit in my life? Eli didn't ask those questions. He didn't do that. He was content to let it go on until it was too late. And I said, if we don't learn from that scene, uh, we may experience a similar fate. And this morning, we're going to finish the passage. And the truth is, your hearing of this message, your hearing of this passage, really largely depends on your perspective of things. So much of life is a matter of perspective, but I'll give you an example of something we've already covered, right? Perspective matters. For some, and to some, God's patience with Eli's family with Eli's sons and with Eli, God's patience that he permitted them to do this for so many years, that sounds unjust. It sounds unjust. God, sure, God was being patient with them, but how many people got abused? How many faiths got ruined? God, you should have done something. You should have acted. For some, God's patience with Eli's family sounds unjust. But to others, God's judgment on Eli's family sounds harsh. Yeah, they did bad and, and they were wrong, but you're going to kill them? and punish future generations because of what they did. But for us, uh, we're going to try to avoid both ditches. We need to see both as God's goodness on display. And his, what he does is always right. We learn what is right by watching him. That said, our outline for today looks like this. Uh, God will not be mocked, point one. That's verses 30 through 34 in 1 Samuel 2. And the second and final point is the gates of hell can't prevail against God's church, verses 35 through 36. Uh, before I came up here, live graciously, read God's word, and we heard God's word together. But I want us to set out to understand and respond to God's word rightly for God's glory and our collective joy as a church. That said, point one, uh, God will not be mocked, verses 30 through 34. I'm going to put the slide up here, but I'm not going to read it. We're not going to go through it in detail. You heard it, and I, I want to hit some major themes in here. So what's happening in these verses, verses 30 through 34? Well, I told you a few weeks ago that when God's people wandered off the path of obedience, he would almost always send a messenger, send a prophet to call them back, to warn them, to beg them to turn around, and he would often tell them exactly what would happen to them if they didn't repent and turn away from their evil. In verses 30 through 34, that is exactly what we see. And what's going on here is out of love for his sons, uh, Eli is content to let their evil continue. But we're also seeing is out of love for his people, God is not. Eli may be content to let it go on, uh, but God loves his people more than Eli loves his son, and God will not let it go on. The poop on the snow has to be dealt with. It was a foul thing in God's sight, a foul thing in his nostrils, and he patiently waited and warned his ministers, deal with this. But when they didn't, God opts to do it himself. Do you know why? Because God won't be mocked. He won't be mocked. God confronts Eli for being complicit, in the sins of his son, and he highlights the fact that Eli has honored his sons more than he has honored the Lord. And now God's going to tell Eli the consequences of his actions and his, his inactions unless he repents. And in verse 30, God tells Eli this, Eli, you know that I honor those who honor me. That is my way. But to those who scorn me and those who scorn my people, uh, for those who kick at us like we're nothing, for those who are supposed to represent me and then ruin my reputation with my people and cause them to stumble, 
I'm going to cut you down, is what God says. Eli and his sons are fat and comfortable. They have authority and prestige and all the power in Israel. They are the ones who tell people what the law is. They are the ones who enforce the law. And his sons are thinking, who can touch us? Um, But the truth is, God can. And in verse 30, God does. He answers Hannah's prayer request for a reversal, for God to change things among his people. And you want to see this, right? Because in verse 20, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 2, Elkanah and Hannah's story is reversed. I mean, the whole first chapter, they were down and out, grieving, wanting, tormented, and all the rest. But now you see them in verses 20 and 21, they're flourishing in God's blessing and his goodness. Their story has been reversed. Uh, But in verses 31 through 34, Eli and his sons who were fat and comfortable and had all power and prestige, God utters a curse on them and generations of their families. God says he will cut off their strength. Literally, he will shatter their arms. That is war language. It is powerful. It's kind of disconcerting because we see God is gentle and lowly, and he is to those who are his. But to those who oppose him, to those who come against his people, he uses war language. I will cut off your strength. I will shatter your arms. The day is coming when God will bring down Eli, his sons, and future generations of their family because of what they're up to. And God wants Eli to know this. This is kind of crazy, kind of cool, kind of scary. He wants Eli to know that when these tragedies befall his family, it's not an accident. It's not bad luck. It's not bad things happening to good people. Before it even happens, God wants to cut off a narrative that Eli may come up with. Oh, and this is hard and we're suffering for the sake of the gospel and all this rest. No, God wants to know when this stuff happens, when this judgment befalls you, it's me. I'm doing it. I'm putting my foot down. And he knows that Eli won't live to see the fullness of this curse on these other generations. Um, It's going to go on for a long time. So he tells Eli, your two sons are going to die on the same day. And when they do, that will be a sign for you that this prophecy is true. And if I did this, I'm going to do what I promised to do for future generations to come. And on that day when Eli hears that his sons died, uh, his own life ends in distress because he knows that the day of judgment is at hand and God is doing it. Like Hannah saying in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, the Lord opposes the proud and shows kindness to the humble. He makes poor and he makes rich. He exalts and he brings low. He is the God of reversal. What we see here is what we've seen throughout the scriptures, God identifies himself with his people. What happens to his people, he takes it as happening to him. What does Jesus say to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me. He identifies himself with his people. And Eli and his sons abused God's people, and God won't be mocked. So he promises to cut them down unless they repent. That's what's happening in these verses. Now, what can we glean from it? Hopefully a lot. Hopefully a lot. Eli, the father, he struck out hard. And while that's bad, what made it worse is Eli, the father, was also Eli, the priest. And sin has a snowball going down a hill kind of effect. It has a cumulative effect. You sin at home, it's going to carry into the workplace. It's going to carry into all the rest. So Eli struck out hard at home, which means he struck out even harder in the temple and in his priestly duties. He struck out even harder in the household of God. And Eli wasn't the first minister to do that. And sadly, he wouldn't and won't be the last. Like Eli, so many ministers, so many ministers, the ones who should know better, fail in their God-given duties. And to make matters worse, they do so at the expense of God's people. 
Uh, Y'all, there is so much darkness and brokenness in this world, just generally speaking. And while that makes me sad, it doesn't really surprise me because this world is broken, yeah? But there's also so much brokenness and darkness and abuse even in churches. Quarrels and division and gossip and lying and slander and violence and sexual infidelity and everything. Uh, And while it really stinks when members sin against someone and each other, it stinks especially bad when it's pastors and priests and spiritual leaders who are sinning against people. Um, But you know what? It doesn't really surprise me all that much either. Pastors are people and people sin. Pastors are sinners too. We also poop in the snow. Um, it's just worse because our poop is bigger and stinkier because of the position we're put in and the message we represent every week. But again, everybody poops. It doesn't really surprise me. But the thing that absolutely shatters my heart is when pastors and leaders in the church uh, sin, they poop in the snow and no one picks it up. Uh, Instead, it's, it's ignored. It's covered up. It's paid off. It's justified with scriptures out of context, and it's uh, hushed up with non-disclosure agreements. I've seen it and experienced it countless times. If you had the stomach for it and it wouldn't plunge your heart into despair, I could tell you five books worth of just disgusting things that I've witnessed, experienced, heard, and had happened to me in my ministry. Um, There is so much sin and brokenness and abuse in the church. And the worst part is, out of loyalty, out of love, out of fear, out of pragmatics, out of PR, like God's, you know, uh, if we come out with this, if we, the fallout will really hurt the message of the gospel. Out of PR, out of results, yeah, it's bad, but God's really using him though. Yeah, they shouldn't have, yeah, but look at how God's using him. Out of all that junk, like Eli, Some in the household of God choose to turn a blind eye to it. Um, They choose to honor a man, a brand, or a platform over God himself, and that is horrendous. Thousands of years ago, way back then, in Bible times and all the rest, Hophni and Phinehas' sinful actions and Eli's sinful inaction caused the people of God, many of them, to have a foul taste in their mouth when they thought of the temple and the sacrifices, and even God himself way back then. We're different now. Today, countless books are being written about this mass deconstruction movement that we're seeing. This mass deconstruction movement where people are reflecting, then dissecting, and ultimately, usually rejecting the faith that they once held so dear. And countless books are being written about it. Books about what is happening, and why it's bad, and how to walk with someone through it, and how to counteract it, and warning people about it, And those are all good, and they should be said, but like one author puts it, more often than not, deconstruction is a symptom. It's not the root cause. Yes, it leads to despair. It leads to disaster. It will likely lead to you rejecting the faith, but why? Why is it happening? And we're not really asking that question, and and if we thought about it, the answer shouldn't really surprise us. I want to be clear, this isn't all, but for many who are deconstructing, though not all. Some are deconstructing because they want to sin. And we feel like if we have questions about God and doubts about God, we're in this limbo where we can sin freely, so they want to doubt God as much as they can. Some are deconstructing because they want to sin. Some are deconstructing because there's hardship in their life, but it's really the consequences of their own folly. But they want to blame God for it, and so they're reflecting, and if God's so good, why is this happening to me? Because you sinned. 
because you committed stupidness, and that's why it's happening to you. It's not God, but some, genuinely some, are deconstructing because it's the fruits of God's ministers and his people acting evilly, and it's the fruits of God's ministers and his, God's people uh, neglecting to address evil in the context of the church, which leads to them rightly questioning, doubting God and his character and his goodness and the nature of his people. That's what's happening, and it shouldn't be surprising. And honestly, I get it. Seriously, like, you can't turn on the TV without hearing a retelling of Hophni, Phineas, and Eli. That's all I see on the news. Every time I click anything, it's another one, another abuse, another cover-up, another scandal, another whatever. It's all over the place. And the truth is, some of us in this room have probably seen this junk play out in real life. Some of us have probably experienced the fallout of this kind of garbage. Um, Maybe the church's sinful actions or the church's sinful inactions have rocked you to your core and cracked the foundations of your faith. And if that's you, I have two things to say. First thing I want to say is I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It stinks, truly. Uh, and, and please, reach out to one of us elders and let us hear and be a part of your story of healing. We'd long for that. Um, there's no excuse for it. It's not okay. It's not a small thing in my sight or God's. It stinks, which leads to the second thing I'd like to tell you is God sees it. God cares, and he will not be mocked. He is good, and he will execute his good justice in his good timing. And in verses 30 through 34, we see God pronounce judgment on Eli and his household, right? But my question to you is this. How does he carry out that judgment? Does he do with Hophni and Phinehas like he did with Aaron's son and bring down fire from heaven and burn them up on the spot? No. How does he carry out his judgment on Eli? Is it like Ananias and Sapphira, you did it, and dead, and they just can carry his body out? No. How does God carry out his justice on them and his judgment on them? Years later, God uses the sword of the Philistines, Israel's enemy, to cut down Hophni and Phinehas. And you know what he uses to judge Eli? Gravity. Eli hears the news. His two sons have died on the same day. He knows God's day of judgment is at hand. He falls backward in his chair, falls to the ground, done. Point being, even in the Bible, even in the Bible, more often than not, God executes his judgment through secondary means. Even in the Bible, more often than not, God executes his judgment through secondary means. Hophni and Phinehas, Philistines. Eli, gravity. Judah, Babylon, exile away. Israel sins, Assyria, come in and get them. And in the same way, God still, more often than not, judges his people and his church through secondary means. For example, the liberal media loves to find sin in the church. They love it. Uh, pastors falling and church corruption has given investigative journalists long-term job security and a lot of hits on their website. Do you know why? Because our culture, inside and out, is addicted to failure. We want to hear scandals. We want to hear how people have fallen. Uh, so the liberal media loves to find sin in the church. And you know what else? The Christian watchbloggers, whether right or left, love to find dirt on those they deem unclean and unworthy. They're misappropriating funds. They're covering up an affair with their pastor. They're covering up a sexual abuse scandal. That church hasn't ever written a sermon. They're plagiarizing everything. They love pointing it out because it gives them a sense of self-righteousness and a platform where they can stand outside the temple like the Pharisee and out loud for everyone to hear, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. 
And while whoever it is, their motives may not be pure, here's what I'm telling you. Um, God still uses them all. God still uses them all. What I'm saying is that if you know about corruption or a scandal in a church, if you've heard news or heard word that, a word that this big pastor, this big ministry had a scandal and their pastor did this and all that, if you've heard about it, it's because God is exposing it. And God is judging it through secondary means. Yeah, they, they may have a reason, an agenda for making it out, but it doesn't matter. God is exposing sin, and he is judging it through whatever means. Philistines, gravity, Assyria, Babylon, he does it. And uh, I told you in the intro that your hearing of these verses largely depends on your perspective. And let me, um, let me show you what I mean. For some, the passage ends here. For some, they see the sin of Eli's family back then. They see the dysfunction and brokenness in much of the church today, and they just stop looking beyond that verse. Um, they stare at the brokenness and abuse and dysfunction in the church so long that it discourages them to the point of losing faith. That's ditch one. Uh, ditch two is this. The other ditch is where some think that Eli's family is just a bad apple. And yeah, there are bad apples here and there today, but really it's not a pervasive problem. And so they stare at the good examples. They stare at the grace where they can see it. They stare at the good outcomes and their own positive experiences, and they stare at that so long that, like Eli, they deny or minimize the log sticking out of the church's eye. Read this story again, and you can probably get a snapshot. I can't say this for sure, but Eli probably thought he was killing it. Here's this woman. She's barren. I hear her. I heard her grief. I prayed for her. God gave her a miracle. She's got a baby boy, and every year she's coming to me, and I'm praying for blessings, and now they had five more kids, and yeah, my son's kind of stink, but look at me. God's still using me. I still got it. He sees the good and ignores the log. Those are the two ditches. But for us, Cornerstone, we need to see both. We need to see both. We can't put on blinders to only see the good. Yeah, but what about this? And look at that. And, that. and we can't put on blindfolds where we don't see any light at all. Um, we need cross-shaped glasses. We need cross-shaped glasses to see the poop and the snow, the sin and the grace, the judgment and the blessings and uh, the pain and the healing. We need to see both. I told you before that miracles happen every day if we have eyes to see it. Unfortunately, we're often too distracted by the brokenness in this world to notice the small miracles, the quiet miracles. And I get that because... The truth is, the fallen nature of this world and the fallen nature in the church is just way easier to observe. It's so obvious. Um, but like I told you before, it doesn't take faith to see brokenness. Everyone, anyone can see brokenness. It doesn't take faith to see brokenness. It takes faith to trust God and press on in hope in spite of the brokenness. That's what requires faith. Um, and John Stott once said this. I go to this quote a lot. Our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. And I really like that, and I'm thankful for that, because in the midst of this passage about God cutting down sinful leaders and God exposing and judging corruption amongst his people, we also get this window, if you have eyes to see it, of God himself fighting back the darkness by quietly, in silent majesty, raising up godly people to shine all the brighter in the midst of this darkness. Um, so let's keep moving in the text and allow our hearts and our truth to be molded by God's word and not our short-sightedness. Uh, point two, the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church, verses 35 through 36. I'm trying to hit this quickly, but what's happening in these verses? It's kind of easy. Uh, God is rounding out the fullness of this curse on Eli's family. He's telling him, your line will be disqualified from the priesthood. And not only that, your family, the men in your family, will experience persistent, untimely deaths. 
And you who are rich and fat and comfortable and all the rest, uh, you will be brought down to poverty. But baked into this bad news about the brokenness of Israel's priesthood, uh, baked into this bad news about the corruption of Israel's worship, is a promise. And it's this. What man tears down and pollutes, God himself builds up and makes holy. What man tears down and pollutes, we'll we'll do our worst and we'll do our best to do our worst, uh, but we can never succeed. What man tears down and pollutes, God builds up. God will restore and God will make holy. And uh, look back at verse 32. When you do, you'll see that even part of God's judgment on Eli's family is that while Eli's house is being cut down, the salt in their wounds will be that they are, they're being brought low. They're being made poor. Their lives are being cut down. And the salt in their wounds is they're getting to see all the prosperity that God is bringing on the oppressed. There's a promise for prosperity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 35. <clears throat> we see that while the priests are corrupt, God deposes them. And in his cutting them down, he promises to supply himself with a faithful priest And God himself will build him a sure house. There is a promise for a true and better priest. And that finds immediate fulfillment, but its ultimate fulfillment is uh, Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who lives to plead and intercede for his people. What I'm trying to tell you is that while one dog turd sticks out against an acre of snow, it doesn't erase it. It doesn't erase the snow. It may stick out. We may see it, but it doesn't erase all that's happening. To be clear, it needs to be seen and dealt with. But we can't be so distracted by the brokenness in the world. We can't be so distracted by the dysfunction in the church that we miss God's miracles and what he's doing to fix it. And a lot is happening. When I preached the first sermon two weeks ago, I told you that I don't love going hard on God's judgment, but I do because it's in the word of God and every word of this is essential for our faith. So I will preach it in the same fervor that I will preach anything else. I don't love to do that, but pointing out God's kindness, his goodness, what he does to fix and restore in spite of our brokenness and what we do to mess it up, I absolutely love doing that. So buckle up, we're about to. When we began 1 Samuel like 19 years ago and counting, (coughs) I started the book with an introduction, right? And I told you that one of the writing styles used in this book is called parallel narratives. And everyone remembers that and knows exactly what it is. I never showed you the verses. What do I have? I don't even know where I'm at. Parallel narratives. I've fallen behind on my slides. Forgive me. I told you that parallel narratives are where there are multiple, almost equally weighted storylines that are running simultaneously. They're running parallel to each other, side by side. You've got these two stories going. And at different junctures in the story, they have touching points. They interact with each other. But really, each could stand on their own, right? And then the author often weaves these separate storylines together to make a macro point that transcends and is bigger than each of the individual storylines. And that sounds ethereal, but I want you to see that in this text. When you take a closer look at Elkanah and Hannah's story in chapter 1, if you read over chapter 1 again, you will see quietly, you probably didn't notice, uh, I think Hophni and Phinehas' names are mentioned in verse 3, Eli comes up, they make seven appearances in chapter 1, but the camera's not on them. It's not about them, it's telling us, really, it's focusing on, here's Hannah, And here's God's miracle and his kindness. That's the movie you're watching in chapter one. But here's these other guys, the kind of background appearances and all the rest, right? Now, if you take a closer look at Eli's family in chapter two, you'll see that Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel all make appearances at multiple junctures in the story. The focus is on Eli and his sons. That's where the camera is telling you. It's telling you this story in chapter two. 
But look at how the story is related to us. I really want you to see it. So if you have your Bible, you have a phone, open it up and follow along with me, right? We, chapter 2, uh, verse 11. We'll start there because we know Hannah's story and all the rest. In chapter 2, verse 11, <clears throat> it's a scene change. It's a scene change. Elkanah and Hannah are going home, and the camera is about to shift focus to Eli and his household. It's wanting us to know, hey, we're shifting. Uh, there's a setting change if it's a play. And where is Samuel? Uh, verse 11 says, uh, he's ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest, right? Verse 11, scene change. Exit Elkanah and Hannah, enter Eli and his family, and Samuel's still there. Verses 12 through 17, we're told that Eli's sons are worthless in what they're doing. Okay. But then, in verses 18 through 21, Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel make an appearance again. Elkanah and, H- and Hannah, they're coming faithfully, like they do every year, to make their sacrifices. Eli's blessing them. And they are flourishing in God's blessing. They're having kids more and more. They're experiencing God's goodness in their life. And where is Samuel? Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And verse 21 says that Samuel was growing in the presence of the Lord. That is important, and I'm going to get to it in a minute. In verses 20 through 25, Eli confronts his sons. Hey, you shouldn't be doing this, all the rest, but he's unsuccessful. Look at verse 26. Here comes Samuel again. What does he have to do with their story? Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And if that phrase, growing in stature and favor, sounds familiar to you, it's because it uh, makes an almost identical language appearance in the Gospel of Luke to describe another little boy who's at the temple also talking to a corrupt priesthood. Does anyone know his name? Jesus. Um, All right, Samuel, verse 26, 27 through 36, what's happening? God sends an unnamed prophet to call out Eli and pronounce judgment on his family if they don't repent. And wouldn't you know it, the next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, cuts to guess who? Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. That's the same exact thing it says in chapter 2, verse 11. Do you see it? The biblical author is laying two parallel narratives, and they're almost equally weighted. They're separate storylines running simultaneously, and each could stand on their own, but at different junctures, they're kind of interacting with each other. And why is he doing that? Because the biblical author, which is a person and the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit inspires people to write the scriptures. Um, the biblical author is planning to weave these plot lines together to make a bigger point, a macro point that transcends the story of Hannah and Samuel, that transcends the story of Eli and Hophni and Phineas. Um, In verse 11, Samuel was ministering in the presence of Eli. You see that, right? Then we're told that Eli's sons were worthless, which we know, because I've taught this text, is actually an indictment on Eli and his sons. And then in verse 18, cuts to Samuel again, and now he's ministering in the presence of whom? Not Eli anymore. God himself. Verse 18 tells us Samuel is now ministering and growing in the presence of God himself. The phrasing will go back to in the presence of Eli, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. But that, again, just like verse 11, is showing us it's just a scene change. But the transition in the middle, the transition in verse 18, is meant to tell us that while Eli's sons are mucking about in the presence of their father, God himself is watching after and growing this little miracle boy to be the next priest. Eli is failing. He's been deposed by God himself, and God himself is doing it. As Eli's family was spiraling into ultimate unfaithfulness, 
as their sinful actions and sinful inactions were causing God's people to stumble in their faith. And right before God pronounces the word of judgment on them, verse 26 says that God is growing Samuel, their replacement. And he's growing him in stature and favor with whom? With God and with the people. The people who were disheartened by Eli and his son's corruption. Um, God is growing up this little boy who's getting favor with the people and restoring their hope again. And you may be thinking, that's cool, uh, but what's your point? Well, the point is this, and one commentator says it's so great. Ultimately, corrupt ministers do not stop or even hinder the work of God. It may look like it, but every time there are men like Eli's sons, God raises up someone like Samuel. God's work does not stop when God's ministers become corrupt. I've said this so many times. God's ministers, we're just stagehands. If we're doing our job well, you shouldn't even see us. And God's work doesn't stop when God's ministers become corrupt. Pastors, when we fail, the church continues without us. Um, and sometimes in spite of us. Because ultimately, we're not in charge. We're not. God is. God won't be mocked. And like Jesus promised, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. Yeah? I'm taking too long, I know. But I'm trying to show you, those who only see brokenness and give up on the church, they'll fail to see God's miracles and the evidence of his grace. Those who only see the good by ignoring the brokenness, uh, they fail to see the sin that God hates and takes very seriously. Uh, and we have to see both, the garbage and the grace. We should never look the other way when it comes to sin in the church, never. We should never allow our love and loyalty for a leader, for a church, for a ministry, or a brand, or anything to leapfrog our love for God, never. At the same time, we shouldn't look so hard at the brokenness that we miss the forest for the trees. Um, it's easy to get distracted by the corruption in the church and disheartened by that. But if that's all we see, we'll miss the fact that God is correcting. He's showing grace uh, and he's showing his goodness even in the midst of it. But you have to have eyes to see it. If you take away anything from the sermon, here it is. <clears throat> Amongst the thorns and the thistles, our God grows roses. That's what I'm trying to tell you. He truly brings beauty out of ashes. And uh, it doesn't take faith to see brokenness. It doesn't. It takes faith to believe that God sees more than we do. He cares more than we do. And he is doing exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine to fix it. That's what takes faith. Um, we need to do our part to fight for holiness in our own lives, in our own homes, and in a church. We need to deal with the poop. I keep going back to that because it makes heavy things lighter. Um, but when we feel like it's so rampant and so systemic, and when the church feels like it's broken beyond repair, we need to remind ourselves and each other that every time there are men like Eli's sons, God raises up someone like Samuel. Every time. And we need to remind ourselves and each other that Jesus promised to build his church, and even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promised to build his church, and even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Either that's true or it isn't. I'm serious. Either that's true, that he will build it, and nothing can prevail against it, or it isn't. Or, and if the church is broken beyond repair, then Jesus is a liar. Let's just say it. If it cannot be fixed, if it's just, oh, and never, and I can't even, and no, if it's broken beyond repair, then Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, then what's the point of faith anyways? 
Um, but I've banked 16 years of pastoral ministry and 16 years of a lot of scars I've picked up along the way that uh, God never lies. And all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Uh, the brokenness is loud, but the, the faithfulness, it's just so quiet. It's in the background. Just a husband and wife loving each other and raising this boy up, and it's so beautiful what God's going to do with it. And uh, I'm banking everything on that. Clearly, uh, when grief overwhelms me, and it does sometimes, uh, when doubt clouds my vision, and when my love starts to grow soft, I run to God's word. Even hard passages like this one about Eli and his worthless sons and seeing it. And, uh, sometimes God uses these hard passages to allow my frail heart to be strengthened by his word and his truth. He sees it. He cares more than I ever could, and he is doing exceedingly and abundantly more than I can ask or imagine to fix it. Uh, he won't be mocked, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. Either that's true or Jesus is a liar. Uh, I hope that God has used this passage to do some work in y'all's hearts too, uh, to strengthen us and give us faith. And we'll pray and sing one more song and be dismissed.